0: This is the Matt Townsend show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
2: at Dr. Matt show.
0: Call the show at one eight five five chat BYU.
2: This is the Matt Townsend show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend now on BYU Radio.
2: BYU Radio. Hey, uh,
3: whether you get, like, understand what we uh, what we were just talking about with emotional um, bill, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy. Whether that's the way you want to go, at some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues, really, are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are Pretty powerful simply because do you notice it makes you almost find your shame? It almost makes you, it made me look at my guilt. It made me dig deeper into what I am doing and what I'm not doing with my own life. Those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress. So the, the greatest value of what I think I just saw with uh, Dr. Mellon's work is that it gives me—I took a space, and in that space, I went and started to make change. When we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings, something's going to change. Something's going to happen, and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that. So make sure you take time to look at your emotions. You are not your emotion. If you're mad, you're not mad. You're still yourself, you got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. Little coach's corner for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show. We got you, you got these beautiful little kids. You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time. Their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet, you, the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right? You've got these dreams that he's going to be like, Dad, he's going to throw the game-winning pass. And then you see him line up, the coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout. Everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a, little, just a little fire brewing deep in your head. What is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. He's never going to be a quarterback if he can't the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year, spending 500 dollars a year to play football. Now I'm down to three boys that could play. And uh, my wife so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league, and my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse and tennis. Ah, oh, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Ah, don't really like it. No, come on. At what point do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and let them be them? As a parent, it's a hard thing because sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever, or being the best piano player, being the best, uh, you know, being elected in in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not, those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying, are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them on what you really want out of sports? If it's not if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? If they're not clear, guess what? Then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, we had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete. And uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team, and he was just incredible. And his junior year, when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really, what I think it was, was the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control. And uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what what you're creating. And, and instead, when you're sitting down watching the Olympics, let's all try to realize this is great for America. The, you know, they're doing well. The teams are incredible. And this is more than that. This is also seeing the refugees that are also competing, the ones that weren't competing. You know, a year ago, they were pushing a boat full of their family members to save lives, and now they're running a race. And they actually didn't win, right? But they won. They're in the Olympics. They won the refugee lotto. And uh, those stories are really powerful and important. So make sure that you're not always just moving to the medals list with your kids and in their lives. Don't always just move to the medals list. Make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know, round a group that that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles. Talk principles, and I think then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids they're very they're very willing to learn and open to uh, to to have opportunity from the parents. So you're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As a parent, you you're trying to truly change. Your children, uh, long-term, always think long-term as we're talking about these issues with Heather. I I could just tell somebody to vote for Trump or Hillary anytime, right? We could just go right there, right to the answer, hand it to our kids. The problem is um, you want them to have the skills and the tools to be able to do this long-term. And in the end, if we're not setting up the long-term game for them, we're hindering them. Sometimes the easy, fast answers haven't fixed anything. They, in fact, have just made a few things worse. Some other tools I always suggest uh, when we're trying to talk uh, about any problem-solving issue with with another person, make sure that you you push your kids and anybody to spend more time trying to understand the issue. Thank you. One of the things I found is that we don't know the issues well enough. And so when a politician can throw something out there and nobody questions it. The media might question it. They might even give it five Pinocchios or whatever. But in the end, um, most of the, the, the voters don't have a clue that they're full of it. They don't have a clue about what's going on because they haven't studied these issues out. A lot of people are so partisan and they just vote down the party line that they're not actually informed about what's going on. What really is happening with jobs, right? When the When the um, Obama administration tells you that they put 20 million people on um, you know, on the healthcare that weren't on it before, that just sounds like a great number, right? It's awesome. And what's happening to the other 80% of people that were on healthcare? What's happened to theirs? Do you know? Because it's more than just one issue. There's 10 issues going on here. Has costs gone up for people? I mean, you hear that thrown around. Is that true? Is that an actual fact? So anyway, broaden your own pool of understanding. Make sure just as a listener or as a voter yourself that you avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or even sensitive. Thank you. We have so many people that are just so sensitive to what others are saying that uh, it starts fights. It starts – I listen to a – out, you know, all these outtakes that came from the Trump camp, all the outtakes that came from um, some of the Clinton camps. And you're sitting there thinking, are these adults presenting, you know, political arguments or are they just highly sensitive people freaking out on each other? Another rule about, I think, politics in general, you don't need to pile on. (laughs) Ben loves a good pile on. Um, You don't need to pile on to somebody. A lot of times when people make mistakes or say something stupid, it's obvious. To pile on only makes you look like a bully. And again, that's what I want to teach my kids because when they're having an issue in their world, I don't want my child to be the one jumping on the one that's already down. Make sense? That's why uh, Heather's advice on working on the principles and the values are so much more important than positions. Positions are going to change. Principles and values, they're eternal. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you're seeing it play out in the news This whole idea of emotional intelligence, to be a leader, you have to be able to manage your emotion. You have to be able to recognize your own emotions uh, and manage them so that, that your emotional outbursts, your emotional, your fears, your concerns aren't leading you. You also have to have the ability to recognize the emotions of others and know how to lower those emotions, not make them worse. And finally, I've got to find a way to enroll people into my emotion. It's called emotional intelligence. It might simply be part of the reason we don't trust. We trust people that we believe have emotional intelligence, that they're not going to fly off the handle. I think of it as like a Coke bottle. If I shake a Coke bottle, um, or by, by the way, Diet Pepsi, whatever you have you. Uh, if I shake it and create, a, I'll create a reaction. But if I hand you the bottle and you know I just shook it, you're not going to want to open it. You're not going to trust the explosion that's going to take place. So if you're out there and you feel like people don't listen to you, they don't necessarily trust you, they stay away from you at certain times, it might be that they're sensing that you aren't safe. You're not a safe person because you can't control how you respond in certain in certain cases. The problem is deep down, we don't trust people that aren't predictable and safe. And it's not something that you can just intellectualize. There's a gut reaction that people have to, to unsafe people. And it goes back to the days that we had to live, you know, as a tribe. And if somebody was a loose cannon in the tribe, they're by the way, more likely to create problems, more likely to end up dying, and more likely to being kicked out of the tribe. So emotionally intelligent people... It's a huge advantage. It is something we should be teaching our kids, but don't just pass it down to the kids. First, look at yourself. Do people trust you and your ability to manage emotion? And it might be a good thing, too, that you look at your political candidates. Do they possess emotional intelligence? And and is that one of the reasons why you trust them or you don't trust them? It's not going away, folks. It's part of who we are, and it's actually a huge driver of success. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Come back. You know, in the 1950s, manufacturing generated nearly 30% of the U.S. GDP over the past uh, five, uh, 55 years. That share has gradually declined now down to less than 12%, uh, which was an amazing, amazing drop when you think about it. And uh, meanwhile, other, other areas have been going up. Real estate, finance, Wall Street have been growing in their Power and their strength. So here to explain to us why manufacturing uh, has been dropping and and why it still matters and has immense import uh, for all of us here in the country is um, uh, Louis Uchitel. He covered economics and labor issues for The New York Times for 25 years and is the author of the book Making It, Why Manufacturing Still Matters. Uh, Louis, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you.
3: This is... um, it's so interesting. And in fact, when you think of President Trump, you know, kind of uh, having some strength in the Rust Belt, strength in the Midwest, it seems like there is a connection to the fact that a lot of these manufacturing jobs are leaving America and and the craziness of our political world today. What has happened to manufacturing in America?
2: Well, manufacturing in America... Um What has happened is that most manufacturing in America is done by multinational corporations, two thirds of it to be exact. Multinational corporations, by definition, have uh, factories or uh, overseas, and they choose more often than not to make over to, to manufacture overseas what they sell overseas. They offshore and that has been uh, so instead of exporting which is what i think we should be doing more of we uh, the multinationals put factories overseas and serve for, um uh, uh foreign customers overseas uh Consumers that way, yeah. And they're often aided by uh, governments abroad who subsidize them, the same as we subsidize our manufacturers.
3: Because the um, the numbers in China, as as the numbers in the United States of manufacturing, the percentage of I guess uh, of uh, GDP, I guess it is has yes. been going down in the U.S. It's in China. It's out. It's out of control. China and Japan are pretty high.
2: Yes in in this country it's about 12% and it's declined from well after world war 2 it was almost 30% and it's declined not rapidly but steadily uh, through the years as a share, that is manufacturing output goes up if you make two widgets one year you make three the next yeah. but other sectors of the economy go up faster so manufacturing share of the of the economy continues keeps dropping and it's dropped from nearly 30% in the early 50s down to about 12% today um but
3: in china they 32% of their gdp is manufacturing
2: yes south korea's similarly high oh, wow. germany has a higher percentage than we do um manufacturing to, uh, is a very essential part of the economy uh, for two reasons: one, we have it, it's the source of most exports, and without it, we run trade deficits. We have we, the last time we had a trade surplus was back in the 1970s. And uh, the second thing is, it's uh, it's a wage leader. Manuf- unions, uh, factories are easy to organize because people work together. It's one factory, you can stop production, and that's where. Labor's strength has been um, and now, of course, with fewer and fewer factories, less and less uh, uh, less and less employment in factories uh, that that uh, robs, if you will, lo- robs labor of a very uh, you know l- important lever for raising wages
3: does is that part of the problem, Lewis, with this because um it seems like We always hear that, you know, it's just cheaper. It's just so much cheaper for them to manufacture abroad. Is it that um, that we have the pressure to keep the wages up here in the United States, but they can't compete with the wages and the low cost of labor in other places?
2: Well, first of all, uh, manufacturing, because it's so automated, uh, the share of workers in manufacturing, the number of workers in manufacturing keeps dropping. But simply... as a result of automation, if we had no other problem, no other country to compete against in some mythical world, uh, labor, uh, uh, the workforce, which would, would drop anyway simply ah, because of the automation, right. and it's dropped from about 19 million in 1979 or uh, to about 12 million today. those are round numbers. Um, that can't be helped. Uh, uh, you can uh, maybe the I mean one way to employ more people is massive infrastructure uh, spending. I would love, for example, to get on a train in New York or on the East Coast at uh, six o'clock in the evening and wake up in uh, San Francisco in a high-speed train. Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? Three hundred fifty miles an hour in San Francisco the next morning. That would be labor-intensive, and constructing that infrastructure would be labor-intensive. Trump threatens to do that or says he'll do it in some vague form, but it doesn't happen, and his plans so far don't even come near that.
3: Yeah. We're speaking with Louis Uchitel, who uh, covered economics and labor issues for The New York Times for 25 years, and uh, he's now put together – he now has a book out, Making It, Why Manufacturing Still Matters. Um, and the disposable American layoffs and their consequences. He lives in Scarsdale, uh, New York. And Lewis, I guess uh, one of the things that these other countries are doing, um, which which really is kind of putting their money where their mouth is, they're as as governments, they're investing in manufacturing. They're subsidizing it.
2: Well, we are too. Public money is roughly one third. Of if if you think of manufacturing output, is about. North of two trillion a year, um, probably a third of that. I don't. I hesitate to use the word subsidies, but it's. Uh, but that's a good.
3: It's supporting. I would prefer
2: yeah. The word public money because it includes weapons, for example. Mm. We uh, most of the defense department orders. Um, Weaponry from American manufacturers—that's roughly ten percent of all factory output in this country.
1: Yeah. Then, if
2: you look out, uh, I'm sitting in my home office right now and looking at the uh, at the sanitation truck coming by. That's made in America under Buy American cla- huh. uh, clauses in most uh, municipal uh, in most municipal uh, contracts. Um, so you have a situation where we are spend, we, we are spending a, nothing that's made. Isn't it uh, gets made without some sort of public money being involved or subsidy Yeah, uh, factories get to, we have this, you know, uh, inter city competition. So one city, St. Louis offers a manufacturer, a free empty factory fully built with, uh, with uh, with, all, with roads and rail lines and whatever, and another tops it with an even better offer, and that um, is a form of subsidies. Um, it's a, it's a wasteful way of doing it, but it's uh, it's going on. Yeah. What we should have is a, a, a national subsidy program that that targets a higher output of uh, a higher output. And from that higher output, there should be exports.
3: Well, we see we see Amazon looking to you know build another headquarters somewhere in the country, and everyone starts bidding for it. Like you're saying, yeah, every, uh, all this uh, this um, government money gets pl- placed in it. Um, so so we see it as a normal thing. It, I wonder if there's is there a generational um, gap, or maybe it's not even generational. Maybe it's just geographical where. So many people are talking about tech and tech jobs and um, and STEM, you know, kind of jobs and education. That I wonder if a lot of people are thinking they don't want to grow manufacturing. They'd rather grow whatever, more tech, coding jobs. But in reality, this, I mean, these are good jobs, right? This is this is middle America.
2: Yeah, the value added in manufacturing. You have to think of it in terms of value added. Um, when you, well, let me go back a step. Gen, uh, General Motors, for example, went uh, went into bankruptcy, and it uh, then it recovered. The government bailed it out, bought stock, did all sorts of things. General Motors today in China makes north of two million vehicles a year. Wow and, of course, with Chinese subsidies and all sorts of things. Why why is it that that's going on? Why is it that uh, uh, Mr. Trump or, or Barack Obama or Clinton all the way back, or Bush, uh, to be nonpartisan about this, why didn't somebody say, look, GM, you have to make those cars here in the United States. We bailed you out.
4: We
1: mm. still
2: subsidize you. And you have to, instead of... China, making two million of those cars a year in China, make one million in China and the other million here. And if you run into trouble with uh, the Chinese government, will we, the U.S. government, the uh, Obama administration or the Trump administration, will run interference for you. But we want one million cars exported from here. You don't see any of that.
3: Why don't we do that? Uh, Answer me that, Lewis, because that's and it is bipartisan. It's like nobody's pushed that. It almost seems like Trump might be at a point where he might kind of be that way on trade and, you know, demanding stuff from the American companies. But uh, it also seems like it's pushing. It's making other people mad.
2: Well, uh, Trump or I mean, I don't want to get into Politics, but you don 't hear Trump saying that you didn 't hear Obama saying that you didn 't hear Clinton saying that why don 't we push it? I guess because the multinational companies that do this um, find that uh, it 's uh, a better system to have uh, uh, to, to operate in in each country as if each country was a separate union mm. unit yeah. Um, Dow Chemical has a whole network of factories in China, and even a research facility there to make insulation for refrigerators uh, and other uh, petro and other uh, chemically based products. Why isn't that exported from here? There is no good answer. Except you, the only answer would be: Well, we have. Worldwide, manufacturers worldwide have the capacity to make much more than there are consumers with money in their pocket to purchase what is made. Yeah, So we in effect ration it. Uh, perhaps we should subsidize the consumers. Uh, certainly we should sit down and say to ourselves, we cannot afford to have trade deficits year in and year out. Because the real danger isn't – is that two or three generations – right now the Chinese, to take an example, simplify it, take, we buy more from them than we, than they buy from us. So we pay them in dollars. They have dollars they can't spend in this country on what's made in this country. They take those dollars and they put them into U.S. treasuries, U.S. government securities. The U.S. government then releases that money back into the system, and people uh, go on buying. Uh, eventually, the Chinese will say, no, we're not going to do this anymore, Just as we, uh, and the dollar will collapse mm-hmm. uh, just as the uh, British pound collapsed between the two world wars, the first and the second world war. And when that happens, we'll either have to go back to making stuff again, or we will— I don't know what will be. Now, yeah. I don't think that's going to happen in our generation or my – I have two uh, uh, daughters who were married and raising children. I don't think it's going to happen in their generation. I don't think – it It might not happen in my grandchildren's and our hmm. grandchildren's generation. But when it does – But eventually it will happen.
3: What What can we do, Lewis, uh, just the average American – Um, to to really support more of this idea of made-in-America and get manufacturing working in our area?
2: Well, that's a very good question, and I don't have a good answer. Um, And that's partly because our politicians, our leading political uh, Democrats and Republicans, haven't faced the issue that way. Uh, I don't know why they haven't, but it hasn't been – It ha- what we can do is to try as I'm trying to do through making it, why manufacturing still matters, uh, is get the issue out there before people. Let, make people understand uh, what the real issue is, and uh, that's a hard sell. It's not uh, – uh, I, I, look, I worked for the New York Times for a long time, <laughs> and uh, – um, I don't know. There's the, we seem to be distracted by other issues, yeah. and not by this uh, this persistent, um, draining trade deficit. That uh, that is really a result of insufficient manufacturing in this country, not of high high tech products, but of ordinary products as well as high tech products. Yeah.
3: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, Lewis. Thank you so much for your time and for your insight. And really, I think also for your energy and, and kind of watching over, uh, being a kind of a, a watch on the uh, on a tower as for our manufacturing. It, it is a complicated issue, and there is a lot of uh, history behind it and a lot of complexity and, as you said, even a lot of um, just distraction. But, man, there's power also to be able to say, yep, made in America and to figure out some of the solutions to make it cleaner and safer and uh, allow manufacturing to bring those wages up as well. There's a lot of people that need jobs today, and that's a great way to do it. Well, we will continue the journey, folks. More ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Well, apparently, D.C. is not what it used to be, because more and more people can hardly wait to get out of there. Trey Gowdy, who is a power player in uh, the GOP side of Congress, yep. he's done. He's not running for re-election. He's done. Mrs. Hare. Yeah. Well, he, but he's, the, he's the guy that, if, if you don't know him, he is the one that's kind of the litigator and is an amazing attorney, supposedly, and is going to go back and just
0: work for the justice department somewhere he goes everything must he said everything must come to an end i'm going to go back to work in the justice major fighter right like and and then
3: he took chaffetz's place Mm -hmm. so what do you think it is they just by the way these are all gop leaders that Uh, are
0: leaving in the middle of the gop power part of it if you look at there was a list yesterday i saw with all the heads of committees and of course, the Republicans are in power right now, so they have all the chairmanships of these committees. There's a limit. Newt Gingrich put in a uh, when he was in office, he put he passed a bill so that there was a time lim- a term limit on how many how many years you can be a committee chairperson. And if you're the head and, and it just comes to a point where you have to give up your committee chair, yeah, and at that point, they're like and – and this is a lot of – that's why there's a lot in the House because they've held the House for a little bit. And so these committee chair people are coming to the end of their terms and it's like, do you want to go back to just being a rank file member mm. instead of – you know from being at this position of influence? And then uh, there's been other reports of kind of off-the-record discussions with people saying it's just not fun anymore no. because you can't pass a bill. Well, you, you can't
3: pass a bill. And where these guys were having fun was in oversight, mm-hmm. which is more fun to do against the opposition oh, party. Yeah and um but he he didn't have anyone to run against he yep. I, I guess he had a pretty clean run that he would have won again but it also is telling you it's just it's not fun to have oversight on uh
0: the current administration because facts are dark and nebulous and cloudy and it may work against something yeah. you're trying to get accomplished so you know you start having conflicts of interest and like what uh, what is powerful though i mean it used to be that
3: um Sure, politics was dirty, but there were a lot of people that still wanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is interesting where it almost seems like now people that are in it, that have it, that might be really good at it, they're even like going, puh, puh, I don't want anything to do with this. So what happens in the country when good people that are in it don't want to be near it anymore? And uh, then what kind of people would come in and walk into that?
0: Aye, aye, aye. It's kind of scary. becomes problematic. Yeah. yeah. Other scary. news. Scary. President Trump announced he will not do the Super Bowl pregame interview. So he, you can cross it, it. You can cross that off your pregame activities. Okay. It, uh, late Wednesday, they, the White House official confirmed the news to CNN Wednesday saying that Trump is not doing the interview with NBC News ahead of the Super Bowl, which is usually the highest rated event of the year. And so this is – I mean, probably think President Bush was involved in these and then it moved to – Obama did several. And it's just – you go in, you sit down and talk. Whoever has the broadcast – Talks to the president. Last year, Fox Fox had the broadcast. Yeah. So Bill O'Reilly interviewed the president. So he did it. Done. This year, it's NBC, the, and then they're saying there's all sorts of different uh, reasons. The president has repeatedly derided NBC and his journalists as fake news. The network and the president has left the invitation open. Yeah. But they'd probably ask him about the Russia investigation, and the president probably doesn't want to have to deal with that. <laughs> and I don't think America does that day either. Yeah. I think they'd rather just do something else than deal with that. Well, let's- Let's what's watch a... Tom Brady win again. Yeah.
3: Uh. Yeah. I, I think everyone needs a break from politics. Or, you know? as
0: I was reading last night, so many people like, I really don't like football, but I love the commercials. Yeah. That's my <laughs> I'm why. just like, oh, Really? <laughs> Football's kind of barbaric, but I love the commercials. Great. Or the halftime show. Oh, yeah. But all the commercials you can just watch online now after the fact. Or before. Really? A lot of times they're released on YouTube like – tomorrow you're not trying to dissuade people from watching no i just think are you talking about
5: like the peter dinklage uh, doritos commercial yeah, with yeah, morgan there's, freeman there's
0: quite a few companies they release because they spend so much money they're trying to get as much viewership on this as possible in the game but they also want people watching these things on youtube and they get more reach that way yeah. and just this hmm, is hey
3: know. this is america i just want to watch the game i i i honestly think everybody needs to just turn off the rest of the news And just go have a great weekend. And just know that the war will start again Monday. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Okay, well, we'll continue uh, hopefully bringing some hope to you as we, you know, figure our way through this crazy mess of life. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. More headlines folks. Uh, what
0: else should we be paying attention to, Terry? A uh, guy in uh, Seattle's trying to bring back the waterbed. No. Why? Uh, yeah. They Is were all the rage. The, they were all the rage in the 70s, all but, you know, then they disappeared because it's a Wait, bad idea. My wife, I
3: mean my daughter had one. They're
0: fun. He says but... I don't
5: I don't think millennials
0: have ever seen one. Don't we have enough seasickness on the sea? Why do we need to bring it into our home? Good He's, point. He says he has a model a queen-size mattress be available at his store for those looking to indulge they can pay around 2 grand. Oh. I just remember my my neighbors they every few months you'd see them running around the house with buckets because some <laughs> it was leaking upstairs. Uh, there or, is nothing better. Or you'd have a hose hanging out the bedroom window draining. Yeah. Oh yeah. It drains forever.
3: Bed. But there is <laughs> nothing better than a waterbed if you turn the heater off on the waterbed in the summer. Hmm. Oh,
5: it's I can see that. Everywhere you roll, it's just cool. It's just nice and cool. Yeah, but what if you're somebody that tosses and turns in no, the middle you, of the night like well, me? Right. Well, and your wife
0: would. Oh, she'd be yeah. all over the place. No, right.
3: I'd be working with you two as a couple.
0: <laughs> it would be really difficult. In other news. Yes. There's a, there's a race in Bedford County, Tennessee. Okay. It's called the Big Dog Backyard Run, Ultra. Oh. The Sounds Big fun. Dog Backyard Ultra. The idea, run a single loop measuring 4.16667 miles.
3: Isn't that three sixes?
0: Uh-oh. Yeah, I know. Sounds so like you, a bad race. So you run this loop within a single hour. Okay. Right? Now do it again and again and do it again, starting a new loop yeah. at the beginning of each hour. Hmm. Huh. Regardless of how fast you finished the previous one, Yeah. until there's only one runner willing to and capable of continuing to run... One loop every Ooh. hour on the hour. How, how far is the loop again? Four miles. 4.1667 miles. So, oh, just wow. keep going until you're the last runner. Until everyone else has quit and you're the last one. So that doesn't leave much of a break in uh, no. between races. So apparently the weird loop distance has in fact been carefully chosen. So each 24 hours equals a perfect 100 miles. Wow. Hmm. Okay, now, now uh, why would we do this? Uh, people do this. Another twist is that every 12 hours, you'll change between a daytime trail and a nighttime trail because the road loop is uh, less elevation gain, and it's, of course, less technical because you know running off-road versus on-road, you know, on-road, it's nice and smooth. Yeah. Off-road, you got hills and rocks and everything. Do you win money, or do you get oh, yeah, a yeah. job there's, there's or prize, something? There's prize money Okay. Here. So, uh, so they switch between that every 12 hours. And when you're on the road, you get to run – it's faster because it's less obstructions. Okay. And so you get more rest time between loops. Right. Right. So there's that little tactical thing if you can get to the the daytime or the nighttime trail on the road, you can pick up some time. Uh, So the winning – the winner was a guy named uh, Goulamay Clemene. He's a Frenchman. Yeah. yeah, He's a Frenchman. mm -hmm. He he, he won that by a distance of running, running 246 miles. Oh, 59 loops over 59 hours. Oy vey. Can you imagine what would happen to your grankles
5: if you attempted that? No, my grankles. I just had to walk for TV yesterday. I'll explain it
3: in the next hour. <laughs> and I was worried about my grankles the entire time. It ends
0: with obviously the bad dog Backyard
3: Ultra isn't for everyone. No, absolutely not. Not even for a dog. Shouldn't be for anyone really. Sounds like a bad dog would do that crazy stuff folks man be grateful you just uh, do your fun little walking events this is the Matt Townsend Show stick with us more fun straight ahead
0: this is the Matt Townsend Show
5: your guide on the side
0: follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
5: at Dr. Matt Show
0: call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU
2: this is the Matt Townsend
3: Show
0: Dr. Matt Townsend now on BYU Radio
3: BYU Radio BYU Radio what great news that intrinsically, inherently, we are good people and want to do good and want to, to be good. And yet uh, so many of us seem to fight, you know, being good all the time. It's it's a hard thing, and I'm, I'm going through it in my own uh, life where somebody you trust, somebody you care about, somebody that you've, you know, had close to you crosses you, does something that is so messed up, how do you not let that affect you the rest of your life? How do you not turn against society and turn against uh, humanity and think that everybody is just evil out to get you, to steal from you? How do you overcome that? Well, maybe one of the ways to do it is um, is to, A, keep serving, keep giving. Keep uh, recognizing that there are good in the world, and as uh, Abigail Marsh told us, only about a third of the people would have the antisocial behaviors of not giving. Um, two-thirds would be pro-social and pro-trying to care and trying to give. But it also one of the things I've learned is my need to give brings um, me peace personally. And my peace isn't contingent on other people giving to me, necessarily. My peace is always contingent on me being a giver. So if I can continue to live the principles in my life that I believe in, I feel the peace. Even if other people around me might be harming me or trying to do things that harm me, I still can can reap what I sow. And if I sow service and caring and taking care of others, then I will reap the peace and the benefit of doing that. It doesn't mean I won't go through life without problems or without people harming me or without people trying to do something. It does mean, though, that I will have peace. And in the end, of, in this world, when we're all after so much, in the end, the only thing that really might matter is the fact that we have lived a life of integrity and of moral character, and we have peace. And so I just challenge us that don't let someone else's lack of morality or lack of values drive your lack of values. Don't use their logic to become your logic. Because they hurt you, it's okay for you to hurt them. No, that's against your value system. I call that logical force. We're not going to use the logic of another person to override our moral system. I'm going to use my moral system to decide what I do, how how I respond to the people around me that try to do harm, and how I respond with people that are harmful is with peace. doesn't mean I need to be taken advantage of. I still set boundaries, but I still live my principles. Period. Then I reap the peace. Ah, and it's nice. It's nice to know... You can be at peace. You can, you can have what you can have, the gift of peace, which comes by simply being the good in the world. And that's why we do the show, to keep motivating you, to keep giving you the ideas, the research, the latest insight into how to be the good in the world. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. When we talk about objectifying ourselves, it, it is so interesting to think that if I can just make it about my body, Even our health, I mean, our health, how we measure it, how we objectify it, how we show what healthy looks like, it's always a hard body, right? It's always somebody in a gym. It's it's never about how that person feels or about your ability to go do more and be more. If you've ever felt a need to hide yourself, to hide your body, to hide your, um, you know, your your belly, whatever it is, it's it's an indicator. It's a sign. And it, you you know what it feels like to shrink. We can't be shrinking violets in this world. Otherwise, what ends up floating to the top are a bunch of people that have mastered the objectification of other people. And we can't allow that. And I think that's what we're seeing with uh, all of these famous people, all of these political leaders, all of these, uh, you know, supposed leaders of our world who really are now in trouble for just being great at objectifying one another or selling the objectification, you know, or even they can take a stand that it's bad to objectify somebody, but hey, make sure you buy my lip product that makes your lips even more plump and supple. (laughs) Who cares? We are more than our bodies. We are more than even the thoughts behind all of our bodies. We are spiritual beings Having a, hu- having a human experience. One of my favorite quotes on earth by Tellier de Deschardins, a Jesuit priest that said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. My friends, we are spiritual first and foremost. We've been spiritual beings before we got here. We will be spiritual beings after we're here, and we have spirit in us to guide us, to, to lead us, and to help us make better decisions in our lives, we've got to figure out how to connect back into the spiritual side and make it – and don't make it about everything else we make it about. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Oh, great. Now you have something to model me by? No, I'm a I'm a child of God. Sorry. It's just what I am. Well, yeah, but are you black or are you white? Yeah, neither. Just a child of God. Male or female? Child of God. We're all something bigger and as soon as we could recognize that in each other, then we can treat each other like children of God would treat children of God. I'm not trying to go all preachy on you, but it's real. And yet we, well, yeah, but your BMI says that you're, you're, you're obese. Oh, please. Great. How does that serve you? Well, because I, my BMI is lower than yours, so I just feel better about myself when I bring it up. I'm doing it for your health. Well, if you were doing it for my health, then try to somehow access my spirit too. Can you measure my spirit? Can you measure my sense of value? Can you measure what I feel? Can we talk about how I feel? Can we talk about what I'm able to do? And let's try to motivate me by what I can do and feel, not just my BMI. Anyway, not to rant on you, but please, let's figure it out, folks. There is something deep within each of us, and if we can tune into it, not just at Christmas, not just at Easter, not just once a week when we go to a church or whatever, let's tune into it day in and day out, and we will start to solve some of the biggest issues of this world. I promise. A promise from Dr. Matt. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, this whole battle that we see going on in uh, in politics and really in life reminds me of a lesson I learned Back in the day when I used to work uh, for, the, for Stephen Covey, and uh, he talked a lot about character ethic, he would call it, versus personality ethic. And he, what he did is he had studied um, a lot of uh, thought leaders, a lot of people uh, that, that you know were foundational to our country, foundational to our, um, our way of living here in the United States. And he found out that when they would discuss success and becoming successful – for years, for generations, we saw most of the success literature for about the first 150 years of our country would, would say that you were successful if you, if you could somehow grow character and have a character ethic. Things like integrity, humility, simplicity, fairness, you know, modesty, love, courage, basic principles of character are the things that would drive you to have the most success, and um, then, for about the last fifty, now maybe about the last eighty or so years of our country, uh, the 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 ethic, the 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 way of living behind finding success has changed from character to more of what we would call personality ethic, where your appearance, your image, your look. Um, you know, your ability to control and manipulate your way through th- and maneuver your way through life. That really is seen today as, a, as the key to being a successful person, not your integrity, not your hard work, not lo- your loyalty, not all of these other principles, but a personality ethic. And the problem is that we're starting to run into is now we're finding out that uh, we might be swinging the pendulum back because we are tired of not being able to trust anything, not being able to understand, uh, having to, to tell, you know, you know, it's, it's you know, sure, sure, the person won the election, but we we question this about the person because people now can get elected. You can become famous. You can win a lot of money or make a lot of money and get a lot of money with no integrity, with no no work ethic even. It can just come to you. So it, it seems to be... Um, playing out. Stephen Covey's great worry that we have to make sure we continually teach this character ethic. And so instead of just sitting there and bemoaning the fact of, of every election you have to deal with or the political struggles you have, is there a way that you can be teaching your family about character ethic? Character ethic used to be natural because you were raised on a farm and you know raised in an agrarian society where you reap what you sow, you, you, know, you, you receive what you work for. But now we live in a place and a time where your personality is enough to win it for you. But personality eventually will break down with a lack of character. And so let's get back to the character ethic. And what can you do? Simply believe in it. Teach it. Hold it accountable. Uh, win or die by your character and, and maybe give up the the politics of personality and the manipulations of personality ethic instead of just trusting in character, integrity humility some of the old-fashioned traits I know they seem old-fashioned but in the end they also are uh, they they're successful long term and we might be creating some some monsters by simply allowing personality to succeed so much anyway uh, you can find out more about that if you just go read the seven habits of highly effective people or you know the Bible or the Quran the Talmud any of those old reads you 're listening to the
2: best of the Matt Townsend show so
3: I spend a lot of time in my life and in my everyday uh, interactions working with people that are, that are that tend to be out of sync with each other um, in my coaching business we we really spend a lot of time with couples and businesses and business owners. In How to get in sync. And it's not an easy thing, especially you look at the tax laws like we have Congress and Senate totally out of sync. And that makes sense. Right. Large bodies. Everybody's been uh, somehow was elected by a constituency that has expectations. So one of the things I wanted to do is and one of the things we try to do on the show is always bring it back to your life and how and, and things you can do for you and your your family some rules here for how to get back in sync with your spouse. Um, I've, I've seen it even in my own marriage, in my own life, uh, lots of, uh, you know, over years of me being a small business owner, uh, my wife and I could easily get on different pages where she couldn't understand what was going on in the business. I didn't understand what her complaint was about going, what was going on in the business. And so recently we found a way to actually get more involved by getting her more involved in the business. And, uh, you know, some are like, oh, how's that going? But it's going really well, quite honestly. The more we know, the more informed we are, um, the, the better off I think we all can be. And so here are some other rules I've learned about uh, increasing your connectivity and getting in sync with each other. First and foremost, count the bars of your connectivity. How many times have you lost a call and the minute you lose the call, you immediately then check the, how many bars you have um, on your service, right? You're, you have to now see, oh, no wonder we lost it because I only have one bar. Uh, it might be better that we check the bars as we're communicating. And so start checking in with each other and finding out, how are we? are we? Are we on the same page here? By the way, one way to detect that is if you notice a lot of negative emotion, if you notice a lot of mistrust and a lot of misinformation and, com- and confusion, anytime you, you notice those signs, those are the signs that connectivity's down. Negative emotion. So if you're starting to fight with each other, misunderstand each other and not trust each other. You probably ought to slow down, make sure we go get our bars up and start connecting and communicating in a better way. Another thing you could do is identify what is the interference? What's stopping you from being able to communicate with your partner? Is it simply, you know, is it just that we're running around too much? Is it that we never actually are talking eye to eye? Is it that we're doing all of our communication through text? There is going to be more and more uh, noise, they call it, in the channel if we, if we don't have a clear signal, if we're not – if we don't increase as many ways as we can to make sure the message is understandable, do you, know, do you keep – if you've ever gone inside a building and you couldn't uh, – your phone wasn't working because you're in the middle of a building, you have to eliminate some of that interference and you'll notice what you do is you start walking more toward the outside of the building. You'll go stand near a window. You'll do anything you can to decrease the, the interference that's coming from those walls. The same is true in your marriage. Sometimes you need to get closer to each other, start walking closer to each other, be closer to each other, and remove some of the walls that are between you and your partner. Another rule, fairly basic one, is you probably need to make sure you have the skills and the tools to connect. Uh, more and more, I just did it with my Wi-Fi in my business. I tried to change a password, and it messed up the entire thing. And then I was without Wi-Fi in my office for a few days until I could figure out how to make that work because I don't have the tools to change my Wi-Fi. I don't know how to do it. So I had to go spend some time learning how to do it. And once I've learned how to do it, now I can do it going forward. Each of us needs more skills, more tools. Um, there's a simple rule about five hours a week of basically spending five hours uh, a week reading, reflecting, experimenting. That's a rule by Michael Simmons um, who just basically says he tries to learn something, you know, five hours a week. And uh, why not? Man, that seems to help, right? Other people that are doing it are Warren Buffett, Oprah. They spend a lot of time learning. Uh, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, they're constantly learning. Another rule, turn up your receivers. At some point, don't always assume it's a signal problem because the the transmitter's not transmitting. Make sure the receiver is on. Make sure you are tuned in and paying attention to your partner as well. And finally, <clears throat> keep testing. And when you lose connection, try again and see if it's happening yet. And keep testing and keep testing and keep testing until we get connected. A lot of times in our we do that with our cell phone, right? If we really have to get a call out, we will keep... How about now? How about now? Is it working now? How about now? But in our marriages, sometimes I've noticed we give up way too easily. If we can't communicate, if we're not understanding each other, a lot of times we just are done and we walk away. You can't do that in a long-term relationship. If you want to make it work, let's just start showing each other I'm committed. I'm committed to being connected to you and to keep learning and to keep trying. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Should a parent step in to resolve problems that uh, their children are facing? Is there a fight, uh, and should a parent step in, and when should the parent just allow the kids to work it out? Well, today's guest, Sarah Zasky, lived in Germany and witnesses um, and witnessed there a different style of parenting. In her new book, "Octune," um, she reveals that today's Germans know something that American parents don't, or perhaps have forgotten about raising kids with self-reliance and provides a practical uh, set of examples that American parents can use to give their children the freedom they need to grow responsible uh, and to be independent adults. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me on. This is, uh, I, th- I think, such an interesting topic as we, you know, I have six kids, and I've noticed that sometimes it's just easier for me to just get in and do everything. It's just so much faster. <laughs> but you you realize, as an American mom uh, living in Germany, that in Germany they do it differently.
1: Um, yes, they have a very strong value on Selbstständigkeit or self-reliance. So they teach their kids to do a lot of things on their own, um, even uh, cutting food at ages four and five um, and walking to school at, in second grade.
3: Wow. But Now, that obviously means, Sarah, that a lot of German kids that have been cutting their food have probably lost fingers, lots of <laughs> cuts. I mean, it's, it, we're so afraid, I mean, right, of these little things. Yeah.
1: I think there have been lots of cuts. Uh, (laughs) I have not heard about a lost finger yet. Okay, good. (laughs) But But these are things that we used to do. Uh, You know, we got pocket knives back in the 70s and 80s, and for some reason that that ethos has disappeared in America. Um, And I think that's a bad thing. Um, We should view our kids as capable and give them a chance to try things that Uh, might be a little bit dangerous, because eventually they have to learn how to do it sometime.
3: Well, and then every parent, well, yeah, so you're going to let them cross the street? Well, no, but (laughs) we we can let them pick out their clothes, and we can let them, you know, suffer the consequence.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, For instance, I try to give my kids tasks at home that are about taking care of themselves. Like, I'll give them their own laundry hamper, and they're in charge of washing their own clothes. So the natural consequence is if they don't do it, uh, they don't have any clean clothes. Mm-hmm. And there's no one to yell at. They can't yell at mom. <laughs> yep. But they, they have to take it on themselves and go, oh, I forgot to do that. I need to plan better.
3: Did you, when you, did you go to Germany thinking, oh, I'm going to see how they do it differently? Or did it just start dawning on you that your parenting style may have been different as an American?
1: Yes, I had no idea that the German style would be much different than mine. Most what I had in my head were stereotypes of Germans, you know, the stereotype that they're very strict and efficient and exacting. And when I went to a playground and saw, you know, a few adults there, but not really paying attention and, and kids, you know, running wild around the play structure, I was like, wow, this is something different <laughs> yeah. than what I'm used to in America. Isn't
3: that fun? And again, on the playground, where they're all running around, uh, I'm sure there were children that were maimed and injured all over the place. No. No, it's they're just fact, having fun. Just
1: having fun. And when things feel more dangerous, like there's a lot more height at the playgrounds in Germany, you yeah. know, they have structures that are 15, even 20 feet tall, the kids tend to act in a more safe way or more careful way, because they know they could get hurt. And I think here we have these really safe little playgrounds, and kids are bored with them. So they try to do things that you're not supposed to do with them.
3: That's true. <laughs> and
1: that's when accidents can happen.
3: Well, and I guess, too, they, the kids here may know that, that their mom or dad is one second away from, you know, preventing all danger. How do you think that that impacts them over, over their lifespan? How does, how does um, not allowing our children to, to kind of, you know, engage in life, how does it impede them as they grow?
1: Well, we all have to learn how to manage risk at some point. I mean, as a parent, I would love to be able to make the world 100% safe for my kids. Uh, but the reality is that life isn't like that, and there is danger out there, and eventually they're going to have to learn how to deal with it. And if we give them an, a chance to deal with risk and fear at a, small, at a young age and, on things like playgrounds or um, trying a, a new route to school by themselves or... Um, you know, learning how to manage a fire themselves, then we're giving them a, a trial run at dealing with risk. And I think that makes them feel capable and more confident as they're older versus the other way. If everyone's doing everything for you um, and then suddenly you're let loose at 18, that could be very overwhelming.
3: Oh, yeah. Um, do do you I, – I guess – is this uniquely American? Or is this is this a Western thing? What is it, and why is it? Do you think that it's happening? Why are we so afraid of of our child taking a risk?
1: That's a really good question. I've noticed that there's a similar feeling among English speaking cultures. Um, people from the UK and Australia said they have they have become a very safe culture and uh, very cautious with their kids. Um, I, there are many theories why this has happened. I think it's a, a combination of factors, and the, the very first one is we have a, a very exaggerated fear of child predators, hmm. of people coming to kidnap our kids, and that the, a stranger coming to kidnap a kid is a very, very rare occurrence. It happens to about 100 times a year. We hear about other kidnappings, but they're usually a custody dispute. Yeah. It's a different thing. Um, so that's a big thing, and our media plays it up and scares us all the time. Right. Um, and and the other thing is that um, we are very concerned about our children's future success. So we tend to schedule them and direct them through their entire academic career, um, basically kind of controlling almost every, every moment of their day, because we want to make sure that they will go on to a great career.
3: Mm. I loved... I. Love, this sounds totally strange. I loved being a latchkey kid. I loved my mom working. My parents were divorced, and I loved being home alone. And it's almost like when, you know, she's like, hey, I'm going to take a day off and we can hang out. And I'm like, ugh. I've got so much to do, Mom. I've got to get back in the field. I mean, I learned the—I learned how to take down my fence and back of my house so I could get my bike out into the field and and make a dirt bike racing track. I, I learned all of these things that, if my mother had been hovering over me, I probably never would have experienced.
1: Yes, I—I I had a childhood like that as well. Um, after school, we were sent out to play until dinner time. Yeah, and. Sometimes afterwards, till it got dark, and I think that time alone, or with the company of other kids, is really important because that's when you learn creativity, you learn how to solve problems. Um, if you're with other kids, you learn leadership and negotiation skills, and you don't get that if you're sitting at home, you know, doing homework or, or playing a video game.
3: Right. Um, what What do you see as? Do you still live in Germany, Sarah?
1: No, I'm actually in Idaho right now. Are
3: you really? Hey, that's a whole new book right there. Uh, (laughs) What an American mom can learn from uh, raising your kids in Idaho. Um, Talk about what you saw in Germany. What was a school day like in Germany and how did how did how did did, were the teachers different and how did they instill uh, a little bit more self-reliance?
1: one of the biggest differences I noticed right away, because my kids were small, is that German kindergarten, and, you know, this is the land that invented kindergarten, yeah. um, is all about play. They don't have any um, structured learning for the alphabet or for pre-reading skills or math skills, no, no worksheets. <laughs> and, you know, of course, as an American, that worried me a little bit. Yeah. Um, but they told me the best things they can learn at that age is uh, social skills creativity, leadership, and these are all things they learn through play with each other. Hmm. And that carried on a, a bit into elementary school. Uh, first grade was still a very short day. They had several what they call Hoffpose, uh which are like recess during the day as well. And they're just, there was some instruction, but it, it wasn't so heavy as it is here. I mean, here they go to school from 8.30 to almost 3 o'clock in first grade with a lot of sitting still and um that was a very different in germany
3: yeah is uh, did did you see that making a difference on your child how long were you there
1: we were there for six and a half years and i think you know initially i was a little nervous (laughs) and i even you know took my kids aside and taught them how to read english because well i knew they at least would not get that in germany (laughs) um but now i feel very grateful that they had that experience because they have a very solid foundation Um, to start school. Uh, A lot of internal resources. They have an ability to concentrate. Uh, They found a lot of their own interests very young because they had the opportunity to do projects of their own choosing Mm. in in kindergarten, and um, that carried on a little bit into elementary school. And, you know, I think they have a really good start. I, I wish that more American kids could have that experience as well.
3: Do do you see a downside to it? Was there anything there that you thought, "Oh yeah, maybe they maybe they let allow a little too much rope there."
1: <laughs> well, um I noticed a little lack of manners among German kids and some expats would complain that uh German kids were very rude. Huh. Um and I think that's because some German parents are so anti-authoritarian that they don't want to force their kids to say please and thank you and make sure that they, um, you know, respect people around them. So that's a little bit too far for me. Yeah. You know, I think it's pretty easy to explain to your child that it's to their own benefit to be polite, and, and they get it once they reach a certain age.
3: Did you see um, – th- there are other uh, articles out there that cite your work. Um, one talks about why you should let your kids fight as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know much about that? Talk about the German view of just kind of letting the kid – Letting the kids figure out life,
1: right? Uh, yes, in the Kita, which is a daycare and mixed with kind of a kindergarten, so ages three to to six, they did not tend to interfere very quickly in children's fights. And in fact, you know, unless things were about to get really physical, yeah, <laughs> or um, it was ongoing, the teachers would let the kids work it out themselves and. The benefit, I guess, of this is that the kids ultimately will negotiate with each other because the urge to play with another kid is so strong um, that it makes them compromise. One thing a German principal, a key to principal, told me is she said you can't force a feeling. And that rings really true because when we force a child to say, they're sorry. We know what we get, right? We get, I'm sorry. Right. (laughs) They don't really mean it. And the other child knows, right? Um, So that she's saying that's not very productive. The better thing to do is to ask the kid, you know, how would you feel if you were the other child? You know, how do you think they feel right now? Um, And they don't always get it. It's a longer process. But I saw that with my children, and uh, my daughter learned a lot from that process so by the time she was in first grade she was known as a peacemaker
3: hmm. because
1: she she was very empathetic with the other children
3: that's interesting because too i wonder what happens when we are trying to force our child to have this feeling do they then start to not trust their feelings like and do they not tend to trust an apology because it's yeah. not real
1: yes the kids always know of yeah. course yeah or, or they learn to fake it for us You know, and there's no sincerity behind it. Little kids are very self-centered. That's just kind of the way we grow. And so they need some practice at um, trying to think from another person's perspective. And I think there's a lot of value in that versus, you know, take a a heavy-handed approach and going in there and saying, I'm going to punish this child and, you know, the other child is completely guilt-free. Uh, we don't always know as adults all the little ins and outs of what happened between those two kids.
3: Right. Um, any other insights that you had uh, while in Germany um, that, that has impacted your parenting?
1: Well, uh, the Germans are very open with their kids about a lot of subjects that we tend to hold back, and I saw that they... That kids are actually able to handle information that perhaps we we think they aren't. For instance, uh, my daughter had a project on death in school, and um, which I thought was a bit shocking.
0: Mm. But
1: as as some Germans told me, you know, this is a huge part of life. They need to talk about it, and they see it all the time. You know, whether it's their pet in their home or perhaps an older relative, and they need to know that they can feel sad and grieve and recover. And uh, that's made me a little more open with more difficult topics with my kids.
3: Oh, yeah. Boy, that's interesting stuff. Well, Sarah, I appreciate your time and your great insight. Uh, The name of the book is "Octung Baby, An American Mom on the German Art of Raising Self-Reliant Children. You can find out more about Sarah by going to sarahzaski.com where you can get information on the book and all of her writing. She uh, does a lot of writing with some pretty major um, uh, organizations as well. So, Sarah, thank you, and all of us. We can all learn to uh, hopefully create a little more self-reliance in our children by simply controlling less, giving them some space. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, little Coach's Corner right here on BYU Radio.
0: I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. <laughs> Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
3: Play ball. Think about the times in your life when you as a child felt most empowered, felt most um, free to grow, to learn. And I mean, for me, it was building a fort in my backyard. Again, my, my, uh, my mom would go to work. My parents were divorced. And I, again, to me, that wasn't an incredibly negative thing. I would go out. I'd have all summer to go play. I could watch a little TV in the morning, get ready, get dressed. My mom would call at home and make sure everyone's alive and doing well. And my sisters were babysitting me. But then I would just go play. And I'll remember. I mean, I totally remember building a fort. And it was an awesome fort. Totally dangerous uh, I I remember being having a nail go in me. I remember stepping in a on a board that had a nail in it, and it hurt. And I probably needed a tetanus shot, and I didn't get it because I knew I would. Uh, I you know I knew I'd probably need a tetanus shot, so I'll just kind of see if I lose my leg. I even remember worrying for a day I might lose my leg, but you know what? Hey, it's worth it. The fort's almost done, so it was very empowering. I remember even finding stain that I could use to paint the fort and figuring it out. I remember the bugs infesting the fort, but I would just figure it out on my own. And um, I don't know what it did for me except it just allowed me to see that I can do it and I can figure it out and I can use my curiosity and my creativity um I also remember uh, at a little older age my mom being willing to let me get on our roof and go fix our air conditioner. And when you're a 12, 13, 14-year-old boy climbing up on the roof to go fix the air conditioner, uh that was pretty empowering. No other friend of mine was allowed to just get up on the roof and go take down the air conditioner and or the air conditioning uh pads and and figure it out. I was allowed to do that. And it was work I had to clean it. I had to vacuum it. But, man, I felt good as a 13-year-old. Yeah, I'm getting up on the roof today with permission. Interestingly, when I'd get up on the roof, all of my friends would want to get up on the roof. And I'm like, yeah, you can't. Sorry. This is a serious responsibility. And so I wonder if we could just allow a little bit more risk, a little bit more uh, danger maybe, um, a little bit more freedom with our children, what might what might happen? What might happen if we just allowed them to solve some of their own problems? If they happen to be the child that comes and talks to you about stuff, hey, Dad, I'm really worried about this and this and this, what would that look like? Last night, I spent some time with my soon-to-be college uh, son when he graduates this year, and uh, we were doing helping him with his um, scholarship applications and and school applications, it's easy to just sit down and do it for him. Especially, you know, when he throws it out to you at 1030 at night. Hey, dad, can you help me with this? So what are we doing with our kids? And are we actually setting them up for success? And And when you make the argument immediately that you're just trying to protect them, who really are you trying to protect? Is it really your child that you're so worried about? that you would you know, write all of their college essays? Is it your child that you're trying to protect when you do that or is it you? Is it your deep desire that they just go be successful and you can then be a successful parent? And is it too late at that point? I don't know. But I think we all need to be thinking about how we are going about raising our children and working with our kids. Are we giving them every single possible choice we can give them? I've told you before, uh, just the snacks that I I saw at church the other day looked like a tossed salad this kid was eating. Instead of it being gummy bears, um, the mother just brought cherry tomatoes, grapes, and cucumbers. Now, choose. Now, if I were the kid, I'd eat all the grapes at that age. Nope. He ate all the cherry tomatoes. Made a mess. Oh, he made a mess. But when he made his mess, the mom didn't clean up the mess. They just handed him a wipey. And a one and a half year old kid started cleaning up his own mess. Can you believe that? And when one of the cucumbers got away from him and rolled, you know, three rows back in church, the mother didn't get up in shame and embarrassment and go "Ah, grab the cucumber. She just opened the chairs and put the boy down, and the boy ran back and got his cucumber. There's life. There's consequences. Now, if we could just create a little space, and that's probably what parenting is about. As a parent, is you might recognize a need for something, but what you might want to do is create a little space where you can let the child see the need and then allow the child in that space to go correct his own life and make his life better. And imagine what that would do for them later in life in high school when they start to create some space as a parent for them to see that their grades aren't going so well or some space for them when they're realizing that they're not you, know, they're not, you know, managing their use of their car very effectively and allow some of the consequences to happen. Sorry, you can't take the car to the dance because you got a ticket. We talked about it. Anyway, parents, we've got to trust our kids more to grow up to, and, and, and allow their life to be theirs and allow their influences and their decisions to be theirs. And I think the sooner we can do it, all of us, uh, the, the more likely you are to have a child that actually understands that life is about choices and about consequences. Interesting stuff, huh? Not an easy thing. Parenting is not for the weak in heart. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, parent to the highest level you can parent. Welcome back. That is the music that means it's time to uh, saunter on over to Jeff Simpson and find out what's going on in the empty
5: news barn. In your effort to declutter, have you ever accidentally given something away that had actual value? Yes. Yeah? I Do the, you remember what it was? Uh, no, I remember at a yard
3: sale, yeah, we, I can't remember, but we gave away a lot of stuff. That
5: Not when we sold it, but we sold yeah. it at, you know, bargain basement prices. Someone in my house uh, gave away, I won't say who, gave away a book that we could have sold for about $100, Ooh. but we didn't know at the time that we could have gotten that price for it. Well, I would bet that would be your wife. Don't jump to conclusions. Okay. Maybe you. So, um, it wasn't me, I'll tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) There's a Massachusetts couple that uh, had a donation to a local soup kitchen that may end up costing them thousands of dollars. Oh, boy. They gave away a fake can of soup that they used to hide their cash. Oh, no. So Amanda Mutuccio said on Friday her parents cleared out their soup cabinet a few weeks ago and only realized several weeks later they gave away the fake Campbell's tomato soup can. Come on! When they went to put some more money into the can, they realized it had been put in with the donations. It was kind of devastating. Oh, yeah. The fake can had had a bottom that unscrewed and contained $2,500 in it. And uh, they they said, I just hope whoever did find the money, if it has been found, that they see this and maybe find it in their heart to return it, which I think is odd because wasn't this – weren't these soup cans being donated to people in need? Yeah. So can you imagine somebody in need – Opening Somebody's up the scarred. bottom of that can, yeah. pulling out $2,500 and saying, my prayers have been answered. It's a miracle. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> things are looking up for me. And then uh, you're asked to give it back. Oh, but that can you imagine? Is, oh, and especially if you
3: need that money. Yeah. But, you know, what a gift. It's,
5: that's the gift that keeps on giving. The charity that never ends. See, hopefully it didn't end up in a soup because that would be a nasty soup. That would be. That would be. But you know what? High in fiber. (laughs) High
3: in fiber. Interesting stuff. Ah, boy. See, you're all charitable, and then sometimes it backfires. But hey, you'll be blessed from on high, I'm sure. We will uh, continue the journey, folks. Our goal is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at
2: Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1855-Chat BYU.
2: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend now. on BYU Radio.
2: BYU Radio. We
3: do. We're so reactive that we all of a sudden will make a rule that is is useless. <whistles> <laughs> we're just gonna we're gonna just start making rules about whistles, for example. Have you heard about this school that has banned playtime whistles as they are too aggressive? You know, for the for decades, the end of a recess has been marked by a sharp whistle blown by whichever t- you know teacher was out on recess duty. And uh, before anyone had ever thought about it, you know, we used to blow whistles and kids would just pay attention to the whistle and it worked, right? But St. Monica's Catholic primary school in England has done away with whistles. They're worried that the sound of the whistle might be too aggressive. or <laughs> annoying. I feel aggressed. Yeah. Uh, children now have to watch out for the teachers putting their hand up. So now they just are constantly watching their teacher. And when she puts her hand up, that means, you know, time to come in. So what we wanted to do as a show is we wanted to put together some other sounds and, and just test them out on the playground with a bunch of kids. So we have a live video feed of a playground with kids. Uh, this is Dilworth Elementary in Salt Lake City, Utah. Look at the kids having so much fun. Let's just test a bunch of different uh, sounds and see if any of these sounds get the kids' attention like the whistle did, Okay. Uh what's the first sound, Ben? Okay, so an air raid sound. Nope, looks like the kids are still playing. Yeah, no. See, back in the fifties and sixties that sound right there would have you duck and cover. But not not today. What's another sound here? Mm, Mario Brothers. Nope. Nope, they're still playing. Yeah, the kids didn't even hear that one. In my day that would have shut everyone up, right? Uh, what other sounds we got? Hot pocket. Yeah, no. See, that would get me every time. The old yeah, hot I, pocket sound. I, I was sound. pretty
5: confident with that one.
3: That was ah nothing. Uh, any other sounds? Foghorn, which less you know, aggressive, but right. not very. But effective. if you're if you're a seaman, you know that sound, and you know you come in. Yeah, time yeah. to watch out for the shore. Any other sounds? Yeah, that one worked. Wow! A little message from their iPhone. Wow! See how they just shut right up.
5: I, I don't even know if they're still out there, but they—they're quiet.
3: They went reverend. I think they're all. Che- oh, they're all, actually, they're all checking their phones. <laughs> oh, wow! That's interesting. So, all we got to do, if you really want to control your kids, is just send them a message.
5: So, coordinate all of the parents to send messages. Right.
3: That's what they need It's just a mass email sent to everyone on the playground and come they'll all come in. right in. You don't even need to raise your hand if you're the the nun or the sister that's running the the primary school there. Don't raise your hand.
5: Don't blow a whistle. Air raid doesn't work. Mario Brothers Fog Corn, none of that works. By the way, um we should have done this before, but if anybody was aggressed by any of those sounds Oh that's true. Um if they felt if they felt attacked, if
3: they felt uh that it was um it, that it was offensive, then then we should have given you a trigger alert to yes. warn everybody that we were going to be talking about something like a whistle that is maybe too aggressive for them. Mm. Okay. Next time, Ben, make sure we always do a little a trigger alert. Okay. <sighs> Good stuff, folks. Hey, we're here to help. We can't do everything, but we can find solutions to the schoolyard whistle and we now know what it is. It's a very simple. You've got mail reply. You know, once you hear that, everybody f- loses focus and Come on in everybody. Oh, I thought I had a real message.
5: It's almost like the equivalent of tasing somebody, such yeah, no. without the electricity.
3: Right. It's a it's a non-electrical tase.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: It's a tase of the mind. Just a stimulating. We'll take a break, folks. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger. And uh, let's do it without so much aggression. Lose the whistles. Thank you, Coach. You're
2: listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show.
3: There really are a lot of tensions, stresses that you feel, don't you, in your relationship. And, and some don't. Right? They're just so happy and content, not knowing how stressed their family is, but um, I don't know. There, I think there comes a point for all of us where we need to to um, to take our relationship and and like we were just hearing from Sheila Ray Gregoire and become more intentional in it and, and literally say, "I'm going to grow this thing." I've had a really weird um, issue going on in my yard where I I have a love hate relationship with my yard. My with my weeds with my beds my everything and interestingly the the yard starts to resemble my negative belief system i don't i don't like my yard i don't like it and it doesn't look good so it's now retaliating except for here's the deal this year my wife somehow has been able to get me more involved in the yard, like the in the weeding, and get me to become more a part of it. And I've noticed that as I've changed my view about it, that it's not just something to hate. It's probably my yard is something to work with, to understand, and in certain places, control. Um, then it makes my life a little bit easier. So as I get my boys up, uh, or my wife helps us all get up to go out and the weed, after doing that for a month, once or twice a week, you start to really make your yard look good, and you you start making a dent in the things that you didn't like, and it's just a shift sometimes, a shift in your paradigm, a shift in your view about what you really – what you can do, what you should do, and what's, what's working. And I just look at it like the same is true in our marriages. If at some point, instead of just sitting back and assuming that the yard's going to take us over and eventually destroy us, if I would just shift my view in my marriage that my marriage isn't here to destroy me, my marriage is here to be an additive part of my life, to teach me certain lessons, to give me some activities to do as well, but to build something with someone else, I can't control it. It's not all up to me. It's just it's just an opportunity to become better, to be better and to um to be a little bit different. So maybe if we see our marriage as as something that we can work on, something that we can improve, wow, all of a sudden you might grow something you can be proud of. Heaven forbid, you might even start living some principles that you can share with others. So one of the rules that I would or uh, principles that I would try to live by and a thought that I would try to blow up if I could is that lasting love shouldn't be this difficult. I'm a big believer that if, just like my yard, if I want my yard to look good, it shouldn't just be easy. It's difficult. Anything that's natural, like a relationship, they're difficult. They're, it's hard to keep up. And if you let it go too far and let, let it grow too you know, uh, to, um, wild, then all of a sudden you'll pay for it. And if you want to have a chance to have a better approach to anything that's living, you got to understand why it is, what, why it's doing what it's doing. We need to spend more time trying to understand why our spouses are the way they are. Um, I, I always think of the, the metaphor of, um, there's so much pressure, there's so much intensity that can go on in a marriage, from, you know, the raising of children and the mistakes that can be made and the communication errors that happen and the misunderstanding, but the goodness and the closeness and the richness and the love and the forgiveness, all of that together creates a pretty intense experience. And it's almost like we think that, you know, that pressure is is not good, but really that pressure creates the gems of our life and of our world. Um, Diamonds are created under that pressure. Our our fine gems are created under such pressure. But it seems like many of us aren't trying to create that gem in our marriage by handling the pressure and managing it. It's almost more like we're just looking for gems. We want to go find the perfect marriage partner and marry that person, just like picking up a diamond off the ground and just not even realizing what it took to make the diamond. I think our responsibility here is with each other is to – Learn how to make beautiful gems and to turn a marriage that's full of pressure and perfect idyllic opportunities to create something beautiful, and then we ought to create those beautiful things. Uh, One of my favorite um, just authors is Neil Maxwell, and he said um, that this world is like a laboratory and the people in our lives are the clinical material. (laughs) Our relationships are the clinical material. So one thought I feel that uh, I need to work on, I'm sure you might feel it as well, is that lasting love shouldn't be difficult. its It shouldn't. I mean, it, it should be difficult. Get used to that idea. It's not here to just be easy for you. It's not here to always be perfect. You need the imperfect times to make the gym. Um, Another idea we need to blow up is that I know who my partner really is. And I hate to be, uh, you know, the negative Nelly here, but you have no clue who you're married to. Uh, And by the way, neither do they. They don't even know who they are. Most of us aren't really good at identifying what we are and who we are and why we do what we're doing. Really, we're changing constantly. And every day, every new interaction, every new experience changes me. So You can be as frustrated as you want for why your partner does what they're doing. But before you try to just assume you knew them and now they've changed, why don't you go figure out why they're changing? Go figure out what is the draw for why they're, you know, moving away from being as religious as they used to be? Or why are they um, struggling so much, you know, at work and want to change their job so quickly? Don't just assume you wanted to be a lawyer since I first met you. Well, okay, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Go figure out why. Don't just argue that they should stay the same because the reality is we're here on earth to progress, aren't we? So if I feel a need to change, you, you probably are going to have to help understand who I am and and not, just, not only just freak out about it. Um, pretty important thing I, and why I say that is I thought I knew who I was until we had a my daughter had a grandchild uh for me she didn 't have it for anyone else but me, um, but it changed me honestly, my life changed the minute I became a grandfather because I thought I loved my kids, which I totally do, but I had a whole different purpose as a grandpa, and it changed everything i thought my my thinking became much more long term I got to be there to raise this girl and to be a part of her life and i got to create more time in my schedule. All these things needed to change because of this one stage I'm going through. We all are going through these stages. So we're learning one way or another. We're learning. That's the goal of the show is to give you the tools you need when you need them so that you can live healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be back. Americans receive education and training before uh, they get their driver's license. Yet when those same people seek a marriage license, relatively few of them receive any education uh, on how to establish a successful marriage. Here to talk with us about the benefits of uh, pre-marriage education and counseling and how it would become more uh, common in the state of Utah, for example. They are actually making a law about pre-marriage counseling. Um, And and, I guess it's uh, it's already suggested that we... Spend some time getting some counseling, but in the end, we don't we don't always know what that means. A and we don't know the benefits of it. So, joining us to talk about it is Dr. Alan Hawkins. He is the uh, Camilla E. Kimball Endowed Professor of Family Life at Brigham Young University, and um, is uh, an expert on the subject. Alan, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for your interest. You bet. This is a this is interesting because in the state of Utah, they're now pushing through some legislation. Um, I guess is it is it it's not demanding that people get premarriage counseling. It's just suggesting that if you do, you'll get a discount on your marriage license. That's correct. Um, and there's no state that that uh, requires. Yeah, you can't you know, require it. That's right. Um,
4: so uh, it's it's a bill that's working its way through the legislature that uh, would provide couples a twenty dollar discount uh, if they invest in. Uh, premarital counseling or premarital education. And maybe it's worthwhile yeah, uh, it's, talking about the What's the difference. difference between the two? So, uh, sometimes, uh, it's not very often, but some couples uh, kind of are, are struggling with some things or anticipating some issues, maybe bringing yeah. into some some issues or problems into the relationship and will actually seek out uh, a counselor, a therapist uh, for two or three or four sessions, yeah. maybe even more to really work specifically on some things, um, wh- which makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's not done very often. Much more uh, uh, common is uh, to take uh, a, a class mm-hmm. um, uh, on how to communicate more effectively and understanding each other and um, uh, just building up those skills and the knowledge yeah. uh, that uh, that are needed for a good relationship. We think um, nationwide about a third uh, of couples do that before they marry um, – uh, most commonly, they seek it out from uh, yeah. uh, their uh, pastor, their minister.
3: A lot of churches have, A lot of you churches. know, official uh, educational programs. They send their people to. Yeah,
4: many churches do yeah. uh, require that uh, before you would wed under the auspices of the church. And uh, and and uh, the research suggests that those programs done in religious settings are are just as
3: effective as those that are done in secular settings. Yeah, it's so interesting because. I do a lot of uh work in this field too and I think I go it's just mind blowing. I'll go in fact right now they're asking me to go speak at a bridal show. Yeah. And um it's honestly in my world it's it's kind of useless because they're all there buying china or like ch- checking out their flowers and their right. dresses and then their mothers are always like, "Oh, you've got to go learn. Let's go, let's go learn from Matt and the brides come over and they almost can't fathom having a problem. Yeah. And so it's almost like you need, you need almost – you need to allow them maybe three months into the marriage to also get a $20 discount <laughs> well, if they would then go right then. We actually right when they do feel the specify
4: pain. that um, you, you need to take this, uh, this educational class um, – and you, you need to do it at least 14 days before you yeah, get the breach by be Now, I wanted to do it more. I wanted I to specify a month, but people say, no, let's not put up uh, any barriers. And That's sometimes interesting. they don't know about the yeah. possibilities until. Is there later a difference on.
3: then in your eyes between. Call it between the counseling and the education. We we have a lot of data, it seems like, on premarriage education. Do we have much data on premarriage counseling?
4: You know, I've looked for it and uh, I see very little. There was a little bit done uh, decades ago, maybe 30 years ago. but, uh, you know, the the overall research on the effectiveness of, of couple counseling, yeah. um, you know, shows that when both of them are invested, it can be very helpful. Yeah, very, very powerful. Yeah.
3: It's also, um, it seems like uh, there's so many now couples, and I've heard different statistics about attachment disorders, people that are coming into the relationship without a real strong ability to attach. Yeah. And this might... You know, at least get you on a road where you can get to attachment. Faster. Right.
4: Well, and we tend to think about uh, engaged couples as they approach the altar um, as being, you know, as having stars in their eyes and uh, no serious problems. Right. The reality is quite different. As you mentioned, we know uh, a number of individuals uh, really do struggle to build that strong attachment with somebody despite even, you know, the real love that they yeah. feel. Um, we also know that uh, many, many couples bring uh, pretty serious challenges and problems into the relationship from, uh, from previous relationships, from uh, personal mental health problems. You know, there's a whole range of things. And uh, what, the, what the research is showing more and more is that uh, many uh, couples – start out a marriage at uh, really kind of lower levels of satisfaction and lower levels right. of quality. Uh, and uh, what's most fascinating to me is that if you work your way backwards from the divorces, most divorces come from, uh, uh, from couples who started out uh, at a pretty, uh, in a, in a pretty rocky place. Yeah,
3: it's almost like they brought, they brought they the, brought them the in. holes in. Right.
4: You know, now we do have instances you know, where things were going well and then something happened and there was a rapid deterioration, but the most common situation uh, are marriages that kind of started off not in the best place and mm. over time yeah. just kind of um, uh, disintegrate.
3: What would be what so if anyone's out there shopping like pre-marriage education or counseling, what are the things that you'd want to make sure are included in in the learnings?
4: Well, most of the, most of the uh, formal programs that are out there um, uh, uh, include the, the things that you would want. Uh, you do want to increase your skills. Yeah, you need um, tools, don't you? Th- those communication skills, those problem-solving skills uh, are really important. Um, one of the things that I think is very valuable, and, uh, and I think many, if not uh, all, of the religiously based programs, you know, they, they will include those kinds of things, but they'll also talk about the principles and the rules involved in marriage. You know, there are rules right. that you follow uh, in marriage, and if you're not ready to sign on to those rules, yeah. um, you know, about being nice to each other, being absolutely faithful and loyal to each other, uh, making the other person the most important person in your life. You know, those are the rules. That's, that's how this works. <laughs> that's how it works. And yeah. I think um, th- these religious programs, I think, have a very strong understanding of that and could do a good job of helping people learn about that. Um, you know, we can't take commitment for granted right. uh, anymore. Uh, and so, I think that needs to be a part uh, of what uh, what we talk about that
3: 's huge the commitment part it 's true because um divorce re- i mean wasn 't an option for for centuries it's yeah. just you didn 't do it and then frowned
4: upon right. uh, for a long time but uh, now that sense of permanence is um, it's it 's not one of those fundamental elements no, it's not. Uh, of marriage and we also know that for many people um their entrance into marriage is is kind of a little closer to a slide yeah. than a decide right um that uh, they kind of just end up there rather than uh you know kind of face that uh, big the most important biggest most transformative decision that we ever make and and really align themselves and say, okay, I'm all in. Yeah. For for too many uh, couples these days, there there tends to be this kind of more gradual slide into it, where they say, well, gee, it seems like we're kind of uh, living like married couples, and and people are expecting of this, and our parents are saying, so when are you going to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, and they just kind of say, well, you know, uh, okay, we well, yeah, I guess we'll do it um that's um, th- that can be uh, a challenge because when you hit those inevitable bumps that come oh. then you worry about wow did i was this the right decision right um and in- instead of saying yeah i mean i'm all in from the start it's, you have to kind of go back and think through
3: that and i and i guess it's also this moving um, backdrop where you may be strong without trials and then all of a sudden the trial comes and it tips over one of you and then you need tools to recover. I have even found um, people are hungry for skills and tools. Yeah. They're so hungry. I have 1,200 people this Saturday coming to sit down and strengthen marriage, Twelve six hundred couples that are – we're going to just have a date night and I sit there and I think – why – where else would they get it? If we're not teaching it, if it's not out there, I guess we just assume it's internalized. The systems do it, but it yeah. doesn't.
4: I mean we use the term uh, you have to work at your marriage. We right. use that yeah. a lot. But we don't yeah. – I don't think we really mm-hmm. understand it. You know, marriage is uh, the biggest decision we make. It's the most transformative thing that we oh. do. And, and uh, the reality is it's blending two lives together uh, forever and ever, you know. Is It really does uh, take work. And as you started off the program, you know, when we do important things, we generally uh, get some training for that. We, we get some education. We, yeah. we realize that we've got to get the training and then we need to do continuing yeah. education. Oh, yeah.
3: And then you need kind of the next generation. Like, so now what do we do with kids? And then now what right. do we do with retirement? Right. and. You know, there's never all ends. those
4: issues, um, and we're constantly changing human beings. I mean, uh, let's face it. We ought to acknowledge that um, that this is probably the most demanding thing oh. that we will ever be asked to do. That's why it's so powerful too Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it demands so much of us and it makes us uh, in, into these – Really, much better people when we follow the rules and do it right. But it
3: is demanding, and uh, that takes some work. So true. We're speaking with Dr. Alan Hawkins, who is um, the Camilla E. Kimball Endowed Professor of Family Life at Brigham Young University and is also uh, one of the leaders in uh, the Utah Marriage Commission and uh, in, in some new legislation about suggesting premarriage counseling. Um, for those couples about to get married and also giving them a little discount on their uh, license if they do it. Is there is there evidence then that this actually would decrease divorce rates?
4: Um, there are uh, about nine other states that have implemented similar policy, but I'm not aware that anyone has done uh, research specifically uh, on the policy and its effects. But you can take other research – And build a case that it will. We do know there's a large body of research that suggests that uh, premarital education can uh, improve your skills uh, and get you off to a better start in marriage. Um, And uh, a smaller body of research that says, yes, this actually
3: does help reduce the divorce rates uh, early on in marriage. Why Help us understand why government should be involved, why discounts should be given. A lot of people may not know how much divorce is costing yeah. the taxpayer. I mean
4: I think you do have to tread softly. Um, there are issues around you know, um, government's big stick in people's personal lives. And so you be careful that way and that's why the legislation – uh, is is structured to be an incentive yeah. to do the right thing, rather than, you know, uh, forcing you uh, to do the right thing. Um, but you are right. Um, uh, marriage is you know, certainly intensely private, but it is profoundly public uh, yeah. as well. You and I uh, pick up the costs for. Um, for the disintegration of marriages in our society. Uh, our research here in Utah puts that cost fairly conservatively. You know, the taxpayer cost uh, of a divorce at about, on average, $18,000 from a large... Per uh, divorce. Per divorce. Wow. Um, that uh, that comes from uh, the reality that uh, uh, fa- this is one of the most common ways that families fall into poverty and need some public assistance for a while. Um, from uh, those kinds of things to the reality that kids who go through these things uh often experience some uh, some some problems yeah, um, yeah. And that society ends up picking up so then we have to, to educate
3: have we have to provide more support more uh, for
4: those kinds of things and and a compassionate society tries to do those things, but on the other hand. Uh, Because of the incredible costs, Um, one one economist estimated that cost at $112 billion a year uh, in uh, the United States. And so uh, it it seems to me government uh, is wise then to say uh, uh, this is the most important institution of our society. We want it to be strong. Um, and we don't want to bear the costs. We've yeah. got other needed costs. Yeah. And so they try to get you to sort of go through the right steps
3: um, as you
4: enter and into marriage. And learn this.
3: Marriage. It's funny. We have Dr. Brian Willoughby on every couple of weeks to, to pick his brain about all things uh, relationship-oriented. And one of the things I guess we are seeing a lot of is um, a change in how we look at marriage, a change in how younger generations see marriage. A lot of people – waiting, you know, almost for everything to be lined up before they go get married is – I mean it would some people that that were fighting against this bill that you were proposing it were saying, you know, it might diminish people's desire to get married. It might actually impede them. Do you worry about impeding marriage?
4: I don't worry about that uh, aspect at all. Um, I think somebody suggested that uh, this is going to make it less likely that yeah. people in marriage – first of all, it's a choice right. um, and it provides an incentive. Um, and it's a dis- – you get a yeah. discount. It's yeah, not it's discount. mandated. Yeah.
3: Uh, and so I don't worry about that uh, at all. Yeah. It, and, and two, what do you see generationally – what is happening? Do you think these the younger generations that are maybe less likely to go get married? Are they actually more likely to get educated before they get married? Um,
4: we don't know. I uh, I would as a researcher I would like to know that. In some sense, I think the younger generation has much more of this this kind of a mindset yeah. where yeah yeah I mean that's what you do you you go and do this and um, uh, we do have here in Utah uh, uh, we uh, we offer for free. Uh, uh, for engaged couples, an uh, a high quality online yeah. uh, marriage strengthening uh, program uh, that they could do, and and uh, often the younger generation, you know that that's the that's the first step is of course you go online to get these things. Um, so I, in that sense, I think they uh, are really open to these possibilities. Um, however, uh, one of the factors that's involved there is most couples uh, before they marry live together. Um, and I think many couples think that the process of living together, of cohabitation, yeah. uh, is their way of preparing for marriage. Unfortunately, the, the, research, marriage, yeah. the, the research doesn't bear that out as it suggests that you actually even have a higher risk of divorce um, when you live together before marriage. and um, Or at least live together without that formal commitment of where you're headed. Yeah. Um, Uh, And so uh, we think – as a matter of fact, right now I'm writing a paper that's making the argument that I think this generation – needs premarital education more than any generation. Yeah, why is that easy? Uh, I think because um, uh, there is a tendency to think that, uh, that living together is, is the way we prepare. Uh, it certainly helps us understand some things about each other but it's not effective yeah. as a way to yeah. really make that commitment uh, and to develop the tools, the skills uh, for marriage. And I just think some of the attitudes that are out there about marriage can be a little bit toxic and you, you want to Make sure and get past those yeah. uh, before you marry. I think there are a lot of reasons why it's more important than ever.
3: And commitment, I guess, circling back to talk about commitment. Commitment, um, explain it, – it seems like there might be a generational view of commitment to what? It used to be we were committed to each other or an institution it seemed like. Now it might seem like we're more committed to ourselves, our happiness, kind of more of an individualistic approach. And I've even seen
4: scholars write
3: okay, that exact yeah.
4: thing that they've um, actually saying that, um, um, you know, that there's a lot of different kinds of commitment in marriage that can work. And, yeah. Well, I disagree uh, right. with that. The commitment we're talking about is a commitment uh, to uh, make this person – uh, the most important person in your life, to make your the most important thing that you do uh, the happiness and the well-being of this individual and the children that come from that union. I mean, that's the kind of commitment uh, that we're talking to. It it's really is a, a white-knuckled hang-on for dear life. Right. Lose um, yourself. You know, find I, yourself. Uh, I, I would murder you before I would divorce you yeah, uh, kind, kind of a thing, <laughs> yeah. um, you know. That we're we're in this through thick and thin. Now, having said that, we know that there are instances when divorce is necessary, and not over, not not just necessary, but even right. Right. There Important. are there are things that people do that essentially disqualify them um, from, you know, the privilege, the status that marriage is, and uh, we recognize that, and um, and and that's uh, that's heartbreaking. I, I just. Uh, uh, went through this um, with a, a former student who contacted me this week It's mm. just so heartbreaking, but we know that that um, that that exists but for the most part, when you when you make that all in, 100 percent commitment, you are the most important thing to me and we're going to figure this out. It may take 40 years um, to but figure we're it all do out. It. But we're going to get it and we're going to build that great life together. That's the kind of commitment
3: we're talking That's about. That's pretty awesome. One more thing before we go. Um, what would you suggest to parents out there that are really trying – they, they want to set their kids up for success in marriage – what are some things that parents should be knowing and doing to make sure their kids really have a strong shot? Um, uh, let me A few things I might
4: mention about that. Number one is um, just the example of two parents um, who have uh, made it through uh, and that commitment is front and center and even actually showing their children um, that – their marriage isn't perfect and that they've had real struggles, but um, they've they just kept with it. Just that example is powerful yeah. um, for children. Um, you know, the other thing that I would suggest that parents do is um, as instead of asking, you know, the first question is, you know, what's the date and uh, what kind of dress are you going to have and where are you going to have the reception, those kinds of things. The first question they ought to ask is, so – what uh, what premarital education program are you going to take? That's and, great. Uh, can I help with that? Yeah, let um, me pay that for let you. Let me pay. You know, most actually most of these are done by churches and they're free yeah. and are free. But there are some great programs out there. But yeah, you know, they come with maybe a, a few hundred dollars. Can I pay for that? That's such you know? a great idea. And why don't you do that first? Yeah. and be and be learning and practicing all those skills for the next six months or whatever while you're doing the wedding preparation
3: stuff, which is fun. that's yeah. great Yeah. but uh, let me help let me help with that that's such great advice and and then yeah that's the gift from mom and dad or grandma and grandpa it is the gift that keeps yeah. on giving and for that matter why not attend
4: that as well uh, yeah. uh, as a you know as a Family. married couple show that example of say we got to we got to keep working on our relationship yeah. too that's what um, i
3: love about these events is to see grandma's grandpa's parents and kids all coming to an event to talk about marriage yeah It's amazing. Um, It's important. It's good stuff. Alan Hawkins is his name. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your Your insight. You bet. Again, Alan is the Camilla E. Kimball Endowed Professor of Family Life at Brigham Young University. You can find out more about uh, one of the organizations he works with and uh, leads, StrongerMarriage.org. It's it's a Utah-based organization, but great insights, great research and information there if you're engaged, married, or dating. Go check it out. StrongerMarriage.org. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, keep the love alive.
0: I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play
3: ball. Welcome back, friends. You know, again, uh, education is a choice. Making things work and marriage is a choice. You may as well combine the two. Um, I find more and more that uh, there's just no end to what you can learn. As somebody that is constantly researching about relationships and working with people on their relationships, the more you can know, the better. You will never be able to fully predict everything that's going to happen in the relationship, but you can predict um, more fully how you'll be able to respond to such tension and, and those issues. So Please, please, please make sure you are out getting educated. And uh, for example, this um, this Saturday, it's it, it is it's a really fun thing I do. It's a date night where it's already sold out. It's packed, but these are all families, parents, couples. Uh, they bring their dating uh, kids, and what we do for two hours, two and a half hours sometimes is we just talk about relationships and talk about the different um, points that make. Uh, that, that are kind of essential that we learn how to to deal with. And communication, conflict, loving rituals and traditions, um, and just commitment, as uh, Alan was talking about earlier. Ask yourself one simple question. What is it like to be married to you? What is it like? Oh, well, it's a blessing. They are so blessed and so gifted and wonderful. Would your spouse say that? What's it like to talk to you about a conflict? What is it like to have to bring up uh, you know, a painful subject? What's it like in your relationship? And don't just think it is what it is because honestly, I've seen couples 85 years old change a marriage pattern that they had had for 60 years because it wasn't working. And so, if a couple can change after 60 years of marriage, you could change after 10, 15, 20. So don't think anything is set in stone but there, because there are many, many things that we can learn and we can do. But you can't do it if you're not reading and studying. So keep listening to the show as well that's one of, because it's one of my passions. That's what we try to bring onto the show regularly, more skills, more tools to help you live longer, to help you love stronger, and to lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. welcome back now the big question once you're married eventually you have kids then you got to
0: decide if you're going to give these kids an allowance and terry has it all figured out a recent survey conducted by finder.com says the parents are shelling out around 41 billion a year on allowances for their kids what 41 billion for some context that's more than the US government spends on energy and environment only 39 billion transportation 26 billion and nasa 18 billion <laughs> While $41 billion may seem like a huge number, the bigger surprise on the survey is uh, was that as it's being doled out by far fewer parents than anyone might have imagined, only one in two parents actually give their kids an allowance. Yeah. Hmm. This is, by the way, all tax-free. Did you give your kids an
3: allowance or do you? Uh, yeah, kind of. But, I mean,
0: it's based on they have to earn it. Oh. Of those parents who do, an overwhelming majority, 86% require the child to complete at least one chore to earn the cash. That's a weird What percentage? 86. Ooh. But it's funny because some of these kids are really
5: industrious and others are just lazy bombs. Children under 10 average about $13 a week. Am I a bad parent if I don't make them do a chore in order to earn their
0: allowance? No, the, but you're, these will be children living with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> Kids between 11 and 21 are bringing in around $20 a week. Sheesh. Well, the, here's the thing. You're going to pay for them either way. So what
3: I like to do is make them earn it and then they use their money to go to the movies. They use their money to go to stuff. So other than them, if not, they'll be asking, hey, can I have $10 to go to the movie? So this way, they have their money. And they don't hassle you, bother
0: your Netflix viewing. Exactly. Then I could just basically go through the entire day not talking. <laughs> Another <laughs> survey in 2017 found the average four-year-old made $3.76 a week, while the average 14-year-old took in around $12.26 a week. $12.26 wow.
5: a week. My six-year-old gets a dollar a week, and she is so happy to have it.
3: Oh, isn't that? That's so fun, though, when a dollar matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and then that's when they start saying, Dad, how much – so if I lose a tooth, how much do I get from the tooth fairy? And then they start thinking, I could just lose all my teeth and I'd have $10. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, honey, you know what? Keep your teeth. Daddy will give you $10. Just please don't play with your teeth. Oh, fun. Kids are awesome. That's what, that's what life's about right there. Teaching them the uh, – you know, how to stay out of debt like our federal government It's got to begin somewhere. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.